So as we come together tonight, we're going to be looking at one particular sliver of what it means to follow after Christ and why that's so important. We're going to be looking again at the specifics of, of sinfulness and how sin impacts human uh, existence. And so in doing that, we're going to be using a, a framework that has been very helpful to many Baptists and uh, even people who aren't Baptists for years and years now. Uh, this is the Baptist Catechism that we make available to you on the back table in a booklet form. If your family doesn't have one of those yet, go ahead and grab one on your way out so that you can see kind of how we've structured uh, our lessons on Sunday evenings to be a way for us to all grow together. And uh, one of the things that Paul said earlier, I, I really uh, amen to, is that we have an opportunity for great unity when we learn things together, when we can say amen to the things that God has told us are true. And the, the deeper understanding and appreciation we have for God together, and the, the more we share that, the deeper our relationships with one another can be. And so it really sweetens the experience of worshiping God as a church family. So we, we thank you guys for taking this seriously and for coming on Sunday nights and giving some more time over to the, uh, the worship of Jesus. So just to recap, last week we did questions 18 and 19. Question 18 talked about how, how the first sin was the eating of forbidden fruit. We talked about how that seems kind of like a small thing to some people, a minor violation. It's not like Adam murdered anyone. It's not like uh, he stole even. He just ate a simple piece of fruit. But really the basis of his fall was disobedience to the command of God. He had made a covenant agreement with God. And that covenant came with great blessing if he would only trust and follow the commands of his Lord, and he failed to do that. Uh, question 19, we learn that because we are under the covenant headship of Adam, since he was representative of all mankind being the first man, that when Adam fell, all of mankind fell with him. So now we carry the same burden of sin that he carries because of his rebellion against God. We're going to continue to understand that concept tonight as it is a complicated concept um, as we look deeper into the state of sin that we find ourselves in now today as those who descended from Adam have to contend with this huge curse, this burden that we call sin. So you know, now you may take for granted since you're in a Bible preaching church, many of you uh, hear about sin pretty regularly. You may take for granted that everyone is aware of sin. And that everyone knows that they are fallen creatures, that there's inherent brokenness in them. But outside of the church, I would argue that most people think the opposite. Most people do not believe that they are inherently sinful or that there is something broken inside of them that keeps them from being near to God. In the minds of most people who are not aware of the scriptures and things that God has revealed to us through his word, they believe that they're doing the very best they can to make some kind of sense out of the life that they're living. And so long as they can find a few examples of people who are doing much worse than them, as long as they can look around and see ab abjectly evil people around themselves and they can avoid those bad examples, then they're so often convinced that as far as morality goes, they're doing just fine. Sure, they, they make a mistake from time to time, but to err is human, right? And so what's this big deal about sin? It's not that big of a deal for most people. This is common for the person who, by their own account, is following as many rules as they think are necessary. They're making an effort to be a good citizen. They're trying not to break the laws of the land. Most of the time, they don't think that they have this inherent problem with sin. This is also true of the person who thinks that lawless behavior is, is all right. They're not really trying to follow the law, but they also don't think that God really is going to do much about it if they break the law. And so they're living by their own standards, and they don't see the need to pay attention to anyone else's standards. Many people would argue then, so, so what if God calls what I am doing sin? What's the big deal? If I have, have to be told that I'm in a state of sin, somebody has to make that clear to me, then does sin even really matter? How important is it to the average person? So I would argue tonight that part of the mission of God's church is to help people to understand that sin really does matter, that it's significant, okay? The fall of Adam has had far-reaching consequences to the state of the world that we live in right now. And if we fail to understand the key role that sin plays in the plight of mankind, we will try all of the wrong 
man-made remedies to try to make our lives better. We're going to discover that none of those remedies makes a significant difference in the health of our souls. They might give us temporary satisfaction for a moment. They might distract us from the true underlying issues that come with our sin. But all of the man-made remedies that try to counteract the effects of sin are incapable of overcoming the curse of Adam. So first, let us consider the scope of sin. We begin by taking a look at the fact that all, all human beings are in a state of sin. This is not just a problem for the 15% of the world that is at the bottom of the bell curve and that is breaking all the laws and ignoring uh, the rules of society or the rules of God. This is a situation that affects all of us. So uh, I've already started ignoring my own PowerPoint slides. Uh, so what we'll do here real quick before we get into this is I want to read um, our questions and our answers. Let me start with question 20. I'll ask the question. And then again, we'll read together the answer as we're trying to really get these concepts into our hearts. So question number 20, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? And uh, we read together the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. So we're going to specifically focus on that misery aspect. Sin is not just sin. Sin leads to death and to the corruption of the heart. It leads to suffering for mankind. The second question we're going to be focusing on today, as these two have a lot to do with each other, is question 21, which asks, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? In other words, so what? Why is sin such a bad thing? And the answers that we read here, and I've kind of reformatted the answer. These are the words of the answer that we have in the Baptist Catechism. But I put it in a numerical form, so we'll see kind of the outline of how we're going to learn about it tonight. So let's read together. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin and all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Okay. So um, if I forget about my slides, just kind of wave at me like this and I'll know that, that I'm not paying attention to myself. I'm, I'm building a reputation for being uh, incompetent when it comes to moving the slides forward. So I apologize for that. So we are going to be considering first the scope of our sin. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul, who grew up a Jewish man, a man who respected the laws of the Old Testament. He was, in fact, a Pharisee himself, which is a subsect of Judaism, which paid special attention to the active obedience of the law and, in fact, went so far as to add other laws on top of God's law to try to create even a greater superior holiness among the people. Uh, Jesus often interacted with these Pharisees, some of which had good intentions uh, but bad practice, uh, others of which were, as Jesus described, like a cup, the outside of which was very clean, but the inside of which was full of filth. And so outward activity that seems righteous is not necessarily valuable if our hearts are corrupt. So in Romans 3.9, our, our Apostle Paul is telling us that, listen, this is not just a situation that concerns the Jew. Jews have the law, but that doesn't mean that they are without sin. In the Jewish mind, there were kind of two groups of man. There was those who had the Old Testament covenants, who had the law of God. God had revealed himself to them for generations, for hundreds of years. They had heard from prophets. They had the written and the oral traditions to lead them to this true and living God. And then there were those who were ignorant of those things, what we would call the Gentile, the non-Jewish person in the world. And here the Apostle Paul is lumping them all into the same category. Because of Adam, the very first sinner, every person who counts uh, Adam as an ancestor is born with the curse of the fall upon them. This is not strictly a Jewish history. So the reality of the fall begins with man number one. 
We've got to be very careful not to localize the state of sin to only one culture with their own story to tell. And, and make no doubt about it. When you go to every culture in the world, most of those cultures are going to have a story that is localized that tries to explain why the world is such a complicated and difficult place. But all those stories are not true. If there is a true God who created all, then there must be an origin story that applies to all of us. All men, both Jews and Greeks, and every culture or community in between is under the curse of Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. So it's, it's not as if every culture has its own first man, its own origin story, and that whatever story is told in that culture sets the tone for the way that they look at right and wrong today. Adam is the first of all men, and therefore his actions have a legal bearing on all other men. The gospel of Jesus Christ presents a solution to sin that is not just for Israel, but for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation of the world. In fact, the original covenant that God had made with Abraham contained the promise that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That means that God has the intention of saving people from every people group in the world. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ presents a universal solution because sin itself is the universal problem. All are in need of this redemption. Now, to what degree is each individual impacted by sin? In other words, why is sin so bad? Well, it is terrible because sin has corrupted the whole of man. We recognize that when we consider the extent of sin's impact, it's not just a small thing. It is a systemic thing. Isaiah 1.5 Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. The prophet Isaiah here speaks of this wretched state of mankind, that head to toe, the lost man is afflicted with the curse. When a person gets um, a cancer diagnosis, you know, everybody here in this room probably knows somebody, cares for somebody deeply, who has had a cancer diagnosis. When someone gets a diagnosis of cancer, they may be optimistic about the um, outcome of that cancer if that cancer has afflicted a part of their body that is either non-essential, perhaps only one of their kidneys has cancer in it, so there's the potential to take it out. Um, our, our relative Isaac, we thought he might have appendicitis, and praise the Lord, if someone's appendicitis goes bad, they can take that out and there can still be a healthy body afterwards. Uh, but sin is not localized like that. You may struggle more mightily in one area of your life, but don't be confused about it. Sin is a real systemic threat. It impacts every bit of who you are. It impacts your mind. It impacts your heart. It impacts your soul. It impacts your body. Apart from the power of Christ, we are not only sick as one who gets cancer is, we are spiritually dead in our sin. It is only God's common grace that keeps us from exhibiting that deadness in a more overtly wicked way. We could be far more wicked than we are, but we don't even realize it. The restraining hand of God and the law that he's put into the world helps to keep us from exercising the full scope and power of our potential wickedness. So we recognize that sin has corrupted the whole of man when we consider not just the extent of sin's impact, but also the immediacy of its impact. And we see that by looking at the psalm. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. From the womb. That means they go astray from birth, speaking lies. So as much as we might hold a little brand new infant in our hands and look at the beauty of that child and recognize that it is not as tainted by sin as the rest of us are. Because that child descended from Adam, there is still the very curse of Adam upon that child's heart. That from the womb, we are dealing with this intrinsic problem of sin. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So sin is not a pit that we wander into 
It is who we are. Because we descend from a man who willfully walked into disobedience and broke the law of God. It is something that afflicts us from the very beginning. So the solution to sin, therefore, is not to keep people from getting into sin. It's deeper than that. It has to do with a change of who we are as people. There was a time when Adam was innocent. Before he fell, he carried no guilt upon his shoulders. But that's not true of you and me. Because we descend from Adam, his guilt is already on our shoulders by the time we draw our first breath. So the extent of sin's influence on our lives is such that it even continues to affect us to some degree, even after we've been washed clean of the guilt of sin through salvation. That's how powerful sin is and how pervasive the effects of it are on this world. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And John's not just writing a general open letter to the world. John's writing to the body of Christ. He's writing to other believers to equip them to understand the struggles that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and to guard them from thinking that now that they have Christ, that they're perfect and they don't have to worry about sin anymore. John is helping them to understand that we battle sin even after Christ has given us the solution to sin. So this problem is quite deep, and it continues to linger on even for those who have seen the wonderful joy and hope that can only be found in Christ. Man under Adam is so intertwined with sin that he can hardly imagine a reality without sin. I mean, we struggle as human beings to have a concept of heaven, not just because heaven is supernatural and it's so different from earth, but because there's no sin there. And we have lived in sin Every moment of our lives, it's been around us. Even in redemption, as we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, those of us who trusted in Jesus Christ, we still know the power of sin because it's all around us. And even if it's not our sin, it's it's hurting us. It 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 is afflicting us. When we heard about Adam and Corinne's cousin today, the burden rested upon us too. We were brokenhearted for them because how sad it is to see a human being who has so little hope that they would end their own life. We, we, we feel for that person, for the family members who have to deal with the fallout from that, because that, that is a product of, of the death that sin brings about in life. So this evening, we're going to partake of the difficult but necessary task of meditating on the dark and the dangerous nature of sin, and just how wretched a position mankind is in when he doesn't know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Mankind, because of his sin, is in a state of misery. Lamentations 5.16 says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Lamentations, I know it's not one of the most popular books of even the Old Testament. Lamentations was a book written in response to the exile that Israel, God's chosen people, had to experience when they were kicked out of the Holy Land that God had given to them. God had been gracious to them and brought them out of slavery. He had given them a new identity as the people of God. He would given them a law to govern them so that their nation would be a beacon of light to the lost world around them. But because they ignored the law of God, and because they became entangled in sin again and again and did not repent of it and turn to God for their strength, and for their cleansing forgiveness, God, after much patience and endurance, did what he said he was going to do. And he allowed that sin to bring great hardship upon the Israelite people. They were kicked out of the promised land by a mightier nation, a nation called Babylon. And in that displacement, the people of Israel lost not only their autonomy, but they also lost their ability to worship God the way they're being commanded to. Their rebellion led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and a lack of freedom in worship for them. And so their hearts were broken, not only because of what they had lost, but because of the knowledge that they were the reason that they lost it. Their sin had caused this destruction in their lives. And so they say, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, For we have sinned. They understand that their suffering is the direct ramification of them ignoring the law of God and breaking his law, breaking his command. Instead of a crown 
and an honor upon their head, instead of being this light of God shining in a dark world, the glory of the image of God reflected in their actions and in their obedience. Instead, they were carrying the guilty verdict of God's judgment upon them. They had broken the covenant, and they were experiencing the fallout of that. And so do we, friends. As human beings, we were made in the image of God. But we carry upon our shoulders a guilty verdict of sin because we descended from Adam and we walk in the same pattern of life that he walked in. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was, subject, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to it. Uh, subjected it. What that's talking about there is that the creation also suffers along with us from this misery of sin. Because Adam, before he fell in the garden, was given a great responsibility and honor to have dominion over the rest of creation, he was to tend to the garden and care for the animals and look after what God had made. He had been given this responsibility that all of these things were falling under his care. It fell under the scope and responsibility that God had given to him in that original covenant. And so when he sinned and became corrupt himself, all under his charge and command, also experienced the weight of that sin. We know that because in, in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. They fall from God. And God calls them to task. He shows them their sin. He makes it clear that what they have done, they can't argue against it, they can't deny it. And he gives each of them penalties for what they've done. First the serpent, then Eve, and, and also Adam. But then you might forget this little detail. They had covered themselves with fig leaves because their sin made them aware of their nakedness. They became ashamed of what they were. Before God cast them out of the garden, what did he do? He sacrificed an animal, the first death in the garden. And from the skin of that animal, he made proper coverings for Adam and Eve. And so the creation of God felt the sting of literal physical death even before Adam and Eve felt that sting. They had died spiritually in a sense because of the rebellion to God, but they were still physically alive. So the first physical death comes not to Adam and Eve themselves, but to the creation that was under their dominion. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be an end to tears and to strife. Isaiah 21, or Isaiah chapter 11 rather, opens with a glimmer of hope for Israel. As the prophet tells Israel of a shoot that will grow up from the stump of Jesse. What that refers to is the fact that these Israelites who had lost their home or were going to lose their home, that were going to be cast out of the Holy Land, it was as if the tree of life for them had been cut down and that there was no hope. But Isaiah the prophet tells them that a shoot will grow up from that stump. Hope will grow up from what seems to be dead. And it's referring to Jesus Christ. It's referring to this Holy One who will come and redeem Mankind, even in the face of hopelessness and despair. And then as you read the rest of chapter 11, a, a surreal picture of the future is laid out. This is Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Listen to what Isaiah records here. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And though... Uh, those with theological knowledge so often like to argue whether this passage is a picture of the millennial kingdom or whether it's the new heavens and the new earth. We may be missing the point if we only focus on that. The reconciling work of King Jesus will bring an end to the fallout of sin and its catastrophic impact on the rest of the creation over which Christ has dominion or man has dominion. So if you are a saved man, if you're a saved woman, you know that one day all of the effects of sin will be behind you. But not yet, right? Not yet. Even now we have to endure the heartache and the headache of not only our own sin, but the sins of all around us who continue to use their freedoms in a way that is abominable to God. 
Christian, you still hurt because of the sin that exists in your own life and the sin that exists in the world around you. But think about how much more miserable and hopeless is the person who is still a slave to their sin and has not been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Think about how crushing the misery of that weight must feel to them. Proverbs 13, 21 It says, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Uh, I think this proverb is especially interesting right after we read about a child playing at the den of an adder and the lion and the lamb lying down together. We live in a world where there are threats and dangers all about us. And it says here that the sinner is pursued by disaster. It's almost like we are being hunted by the effects of our sin. Every person who languishes in a prison can think sin or thank sin for their plight and their, their lack of freedom. Every person who cannot break the grip of addiction watches their life fall apart around them because of the corrosive and destructive power of sin. Every person who worships a worthless idol and because of that is constantly coveting a thing they cannot grasp, a happiness and, and completeness that is alien to him, that person who is an idolater is in the position they are in because of the curse of sin. Because God has put together laws to keep us from that kind of destruction and we ignore them. The anguish that is natural fruit of rebellion and sin piles up to the point where man can hardly even tolerate it. Genesis 4.13, after Cain committed the first murder, he is banished from the place where he lived. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And to that I might say, Cain, tell that to your brother who is slain in the fields. You cannot, for by sin you have banished him away from life itself. You can't talk to your brother. He's dead because of the repercussions of your rebellion. So even while we will lament the effects of sin, we're contributing to its corrosive impact on the world all around us. What an irony. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God. We think about uh, that verse a, a few minutes ago that spoke about these deadly animals like wolves and bears. And I know people who won't swim in the ocean because they're worried of the, the wrath of a shark is going to get them, Right? Think about it. Yeah. yeah, my landlover brother right here, he doesn't want to go into those waters, right? Because of the potential danger there. But if you are in sin and Christ is not your shield, then the wrath of God himself is upon your shoulders. You are looking at a judgment that is millions of times more terrifying than the jaws of the biggest great white shark. And so many people are just walking through this world, ignoring the plight that they have put themselves in with their disobedience. Sin's consequences are not only immediate. We don't just see the, the fallout of it here on earth, but they are eventual as well. The dark cloud of justice hangs ominously over the head of those who are still subject to the tyranny of sin. So to escape this great misery, lost man has fabricated for himself Various escapes, various hiding places and shelters that obscure his vision of the reality of sin. Deuteronomy 29, 19 describes this to us. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of his, own, uh, uh, the words of his sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. I know that that language is a little bit cryptic if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, but what it's talking about there is, woe to the person who engages in iniquity and breaks God's law and then assures themselves that they're going to be just fine, that there is no judgment for it, that they're going to survive the penalty of that sin, that they'll make it through okay. They are ignoring the grave danger of God's wrath it is easy to mock the arrogant who have been caught in their sin. 
We see examples of that in our culture today, the Jeffrey Epsteins and the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. But the mirror can reveal some ugly arrogance in each of us if we're brave enough to look. You know, we all fall short of the glory of God. And we often pretend as if judgment is some kind of make-believe thing so that we can neatly pack away our guilt and our discomfort to the side. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, the law is written on our hearts, but we just tell our hearts to be quiet. We don't want to hear about it. Romans 12, 14 through 16 says that for when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they've not had the law of God revealed to them with clarity through the scriptures, they don't have the law, but by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now this is a complicated passage and I can't break it down in its entirety. But we see there is that evidence that even those who do not know the law of God clearly have something within them that God has placed there for the express purpose of making it impossible for each of us to say, I'm completely without sin. We know we are breaking the law of God. Even when you are far from God and you did not call him king, when you committed sin, something in you went off like a warning sign. Something tugged at you and said, look out, the wrath of God is behind this action. So there is a knowledge of that sin. But those who are entrenched in sin get very adept at convincing themselves that it's just a small thing, that they don't need to be worried about the wrath of God. This fantasy escapism is poison to the soul, and it only sinks lost man further into the malaise of wickedness. Psalm 50.22 says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. This is a stern warning that we can't afford to pretend as if God is anything less than a perfect judge of righteousness. There is nowhere we can run from justice if it is administered by the one who is all-knowing and is everywhere. I know many of us Christians, when we feel alone, we open our Bibles up to Psalm 139, right? Psalm 139 is such a wonderful reminder to us of how precious we are to the Lord, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, and then we read in those pages that there is nowhere we could go from His Spirit. That even though we might feel very alone right now and no one else understands us, that we have a God that we can't escape from. So no matter how far the winds of this world pull us from one direction to another, Christ abides with us. Our God is near. But that same promise, in some ways, could be terrifying to those who don't have Christ. No matter where you run from Him, no matter where you try to hide from God, He will discover you. You could go down to the depths of the grave and you can't escape His gaze. His justice will find you out. There is nowhere we can run from Him. Isaiah 26, 11. O Lord, Your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see Your zeal. For your people and let them be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. The saints, glory to God, have been made aware of what they were formerly running from. One of the great gifts that God gives his elect is a conscious awareness of the crushing weight of their own sin. Not only is the law written on their heart as it is to every human being, but when God awakens the dead sinner to the understanding that they need Christ, the law becomes something so much more important. And we feel the true weight of our sin. We see that it is not just sin against other people who are also themselves sinners. But when we break the law of God, we're violating, we are offending a perfect and pure and infinite being, a being to whom we owe our entire existence. So the one who becomes a Christian has been made mercifully aware of the depth of their sin to the point where they cannot hide from it any longer. And they recognize that they need 
help, that there is no solution for that sin within themselves. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That sounds like a desperate plea, and it is, but it is a beautiful one because it is the plea that turns the eye to Christ and helps the lost man see that without the Son of God, there is no hope for them to escape the wrath that they have earned for themselves. And what have they been made aware of, friends? We know that we are subject to the effects of the inherited curse, but to what degree? And so we're going to move to question 21 now, and it's four answers, as we have lined it out with uh, numbers in our original, uh, original slide there. We're going to work through them bit by bit. So the first way that we might describe our sinful state is that it comes from the guilt we inherit from Adam. Our sinful state comes from the guilt we inherit from Adam. Now, is it right, friends, is it just for God to let the weight of Adam's failure, he was certainly a guilty man, he broke God's law, is it okay for God to put that guilt onto other men who theoretically might not sin the way that Adam did? This is a good question to ask because God does indeed impute guilt onto others that way. All who come from Adam do not come with a clean slate. We don't get the same opportunity that Adam did in the garden where God makes a covenant with us and says, if you sin, you will be cast out. But if you obey my law, then you will have eternal life. We don't get that same option. That option was given to Adam. He failed. And the results of that test are now weighing upon our shoulders. So we must ask ourselves, is that right? Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6 says, You shall not bow down to them, meaning false gods or idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If this is the practice of God, if this is what he does, and the scripture tells us it is what he does, and God is holy and righteous, then how can we point a finger at him and say, that's not fair. I'm not Adam. How can you put that on my shoulders? What is not fair is a creation who owes everything to the life-giving power of God. And instead of responding in absolute gratitude and obedience, instead repays him with rebellion and contempt. Rest assured, believers, as Psalm 92.15 says, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So the imputation of Adam's sin and guilt onto us is not wrong. God has every right to do that. It is somewhat strange for us to even ask this question. Is it right for God to do that? As if we are qualified to render judgment in the matter. Consider the state of our sinfulness, friends. And we will as we work through these numbers here. The second answer that explains the extent of the curse, uh, the curse of sin's impact on us is, is a quite personal one. Secondly, our sinful state results in a lack of innocence in each of us. So because of this sin that we inherited from Adam, we cannot look at the human being as inherently good and innocent. We must look at the human being as innocently prone to wander and infected by the sin of their first father. Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Then I'll get to the questions at the end. Okay, buddy? Nothing good dwells in me, says Paul. And Paul was a better man than I am. All right? Paul was a man of great devotion. Paul was a man of incredible humility. He was a patient man. He was committed in all ways to the, to the mission of God. And yet he is confessing here, one of our greatest examples of faith, that nothing good dwells in him. He says, I lack desire to do what is right. What a confession. What a vulnerability by this man who has been called by God to spread the gospel to the world. He lacks the desire to do what is right. And don't we, friends, lack that desire as well? Not entirely if we are Christians, but we lack that desire. We don't have the drive to do uh, life as obediently to God as Jesus did. 
He says, not only does he lack the desire, but he lacks the ability to do what is right, even if he were to desire it. So he can't functionally do what is good, even if he has a heart to do what is right. The elders of uh, the land of Israel approached the prophet Ezekiel at one point and asked for wisdom from him because they were asked to render judgments. These elders were men who were esteemed in, in the land, and so the elders would gather at the gate periodically, and people would come and ask them for wisdom, and they would basically be like a jury that would help keep the peace in Israel. And these elders came to Ezekiel, who was hearing from the Lord, and they asked his counsel. Ezekiel 4, starting with verse 5, or starting with verse 4, rather. It says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. So Ezekiel is saying that if somebody with a corrupt heart who loves something more than God comes to God for justice, then God is going to reveal to them that they are breaking the law by loving what is not God. He will bring that to bear. They are estranged from God. In other words, they have abandoned the Lord God, the true God, to go and worship something that is less than God. And often that fake God that they have fashioned for themselves is more of a picture of them, an image of themselves, than it is an image of any kind of real God. We have estranged ourselves from the source of good. And so our sinful state results in a lack of innocence in each of us. We, we cannot claim that our slate is clean because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thirdly, the reach of sin's curse extends corruption in two important directions, both outwardly and inwardly to all of us. Romans 7.5 says, For while we, are, we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, the body that we have desires what is fleshly. It is prone to wander and do things that are disobedient to the law of God. Because our physical dwelling place is affected by Adam's curse, just like the rest of creation, they are drawn to what they should be repulsed from. What is dirty and destructive often appeals to our sense of desire in some twisted way. And notice, Paul points out that we were indeed fruitful. Notice he says there that our flesh bore fruit. What kinds of fruit? Fruit for death. That made me think of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of life that God describes to us in Galatians chapter uh, 5, starting verse 20. Most of you are familiar with this list of the fruits of the Spirit. I've listed them here on the left. Went too far. On the left. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what God produces in those who are submitted to Him, who trust in Christ and have been given the Spirit of grace. That is how God grows us to be more like Jesus. Those are the attributes that define the Son of God. And they are the attributes that should define the people of God. But in the flesh, when we let the flesh rule us, think about how we live. We live the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. We produce the fruits of the flesh. So what is the opposite of love? Most people would say the opposite of love is hate. But I would, I would argue that the opposite of love is apathy. It is a lack of concern and care for anything but the self. You can hate what is wicked, and that's not actually a bad thing. But apathy, apathy is the abject absence of love. What is the absence of joy? It is not just sadness, it is discontentedment. We experience joy when we realize that Christ is enough for us, and we are satisfied in Him. So when we don't bear the fruit of the Spirit, but instead we let the body that God has given to us, this externally corrupted thing, tell us what we should go after in life, then we find ourselves struggling with discontent. Instead of peace, we have anxiety. Worries dominate us, and fears cripple us. Instead of patience, we find ourselves exasperated at others, demanding of them what we can't even produce ourselves, expecting others to be holy when we can't be holy. Instead of kindness, we are rude to others. Instead of goodness coming out of us, we see wickedness and lawlessness. Faithfulness is re 
replaced by a conniving and lying spirit in our heart where we twist the truths and we, re, we, we ignore what is real to live in a fantasy expression of what we want. Gentleness replaced by violence. Self-control replaced by a temper that has a hair trigger and can go off at any time. So you can see how the consequences of sin's curse is an external problem. But it is not only external, it is internal as well, isn't it? Titus 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So think of these inward corruptions that sin brings to us. We see a corruption of mind. Our thought life is broken. We think of things that are ugly and against the law of God. And even if we don't do them, we often let these things play in our minds on a wicked loop. We allow our thoughts to stay with, with selfish, linger on selfish things. The carnal mind is at enmity to the law of God. But not only is our mind corrupted, not only do we deceive ourselves and, and try to believe what is false because we think it might benefit us in some way, but also our conscience is defiled. We harden our hearts and refuse to acknowledge the ugliness of the crooked desires that our flesh is, is drawing us with all the time. So the conscience that God has given you, that law that is written on your heart, we tell it to shut up and go away. We become calloused to it. We don't even allow that grace to impact us and to make us rightfully afraid of the judgment that we would bring upon ourselves if we were to sin against our God. One more category of the impact of sin. Not only have we inherited Adam's guilt, so we've talked about how this comes to us even before we're born, but we also manufacture our own guilt by committing sins ourselves in the exact pattern of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. You see, all the arguments against inherited sin are m mute. They are null and void. Mm -hmm. For even if we are not rightfully condemned for the sins of Adam, which we are, God is, is righteous in condemning us for Adam's sin, but even if we were not, we all commit our own sins. We all break the law of God ourselves. Do you even need scripture to prove this to you? I don't think I need to put anything up on the screen. If you just look at your own life, you will see the, the ramifications of this. Even those of us who are sanctified by Christ and who love the law of God know that sinfulness is knocking at the door. We know that we needed a Savior because we broke the law of God. The things that we do are often not right. They are often offensive to the Lord. You've not told the truth. You know that you have coveted you understand that you have cheated and that you have walked apart from the grace that God has given. You have walked right past someone who needs love and you've refused to give it. We have all sinned in some capacity. And in doing so, we've proved that even if we were to have gotten the same chance that Adam got, if God were to start all over and make us the covenant head and say, here's the covenant, choose life or death, that we would each have fallen in precisely the same way that he and Eve did. And it doesn't take much, does it, friends? The one who gives the law is perfect. His law is pure. So when we break even the least of his commandments, we make ourselves rebels against his sovereign rule. And that's why James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but that is a perfection that I can't bear up underneath. Mm -hmm. If that is the requirements for me to be near a holy God, I have no hope if I'm going to meet those requirements. The only hope that I have is that somebody more righteous than me will fulfill that need on my behalf. So the wages of sin is death, but not just death. Misery and corruption and hard-heartedness and judgment. Why, friends, do we allow ourselves to be attracted by the ugliness of sin when the restlessness and fear and slavery that it produces is so crushing to us. That is my assignment for you tonight, is to help you to see how strong sin is and how ugly it is and how we should hate it. But because I'm a pastor, I can't leave you at that. 
This is not just a warning to those who don't have Christ. It is also a benefit for us who know the Lord God and have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to know the depth of sin. Why? Because it helps us to have a greater appreciation for the one who saved us and brought us out of that sin. The greater the fall of man, the greater our gratitude for God, for his glory and our good. He plucked us out of this mire. He, he removed us from this pit and dragged us from the darkness into a marvelous light. And we used to be subject to that unending judgment. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, those who are called by his name now can look back in the rearview mirror at that and recognize that the crushing weight that is still pressing upon the creation is no longer on us because Christ has shouldered it. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, see that outside, that inside, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's where we were, brothers and sisters. But then listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes, the weight of sin is massive, but so much greater is the victory that Christ won for us. Amen. Rejoice, family of God, that he has set you free. And if you have not yet experienced this freedom, then I urge you to talk to us afterwards about how you can have a relationship with God that is not a relationship of rebellion and judgment, but is instead a relationship of forgiveness and grace and reconcile, a reconciliation to Him. I pray that you will seek Him and that today might be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and for the wonderful glory of your word. Help us to not shy away from the tough teachings of scripture. God, we cripple the world if we refuse to speak of sin and its ugliness because that is part of the message. The good news is the good news because it saves us from this bad news, which is so universally applicable to the hearts of fallen men. And so we thank you, Lord God, for keeping our eyes open and for letting us speak the truth in love. We thank you for the love of Christ which can overcome all of this wretchedness. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.